Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our true and living God, we thank you for this gospel we have just heard, the word of your Son. We pray that through your mighty spirit and according to your mercy, this word would do your good work in our lives, that it would help us to trust Jesus for life and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, we would be equipped to live as your children. Help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly and help us all to receive this as the word of the living God to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. After 25 years of living in a wheelchair, my paralysed body is beginning to break down. I shouldn't complain. I haven't suffered through the usual lung and kidney infections that accompany quadriplegia. I've enjoyed miraculously good health for years. All that changed in 1991. For me, it was a year of blood pressure problems, drastic weight loss, infections, and worst of all, pressure sores on my side and back. For three long weeks, two stubborn sores forced me to bed. And who could guess how long it would take to close those oozing wounds? I start with this quote from a quadriplegic woman, Joni Erickson Tata, because I think that while we are able-bodied, it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like not to have the use of our legs, to be confined to our beds or a wheelchair, not to run and kick a ball, not to be able to work or take ourselves to the toilet or to the fridge, not to be able to stroll outside and feel the sun on our faces, to be dependent on others, sidelined from life. For 38 years, the man in John 5 had been an invalid, and now he was confined to his mattress amongst the other invalids in the colonnades surrounding the Bethesda pool in Jerusalem. On his mattress, waiting. Waiting for the cure promised to the first person who entered the pool after the waters were troubled. Then with a command, get up, pick up your mat and walk, Jesus brought that helplessness, that boredom, that despairing waiting to an end. Now that of itself is remarkable. But what is more remarkable, even shocking, are the words that Jesus speaks to him when he finds him again. See, you are well again. Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. It's shocking, firstly, because... How could anything be worse than having no use of your legs, being paralysed for 38 years, lying there day in, day out, the discomfort, the pity, the helplessness, seeing life pass him by? I mean, what would he have missed in those 38 years? Think of it, all those rich experiences, the joys of growing relationships, of marriage, of children, the small triumphs of personal achievement, none of that had been his. His lot had been stretching, had been day stretching into another day of the same. The same walls to stare at, the same useless legs to drag about, the same hopelessness knowing he had no one to take him into the pool, a painful monotony. As some might have said that he was better off dead. Some still say that today. 
In fact, a relative of Joni, that quadriplegic woman I quoted earlier, said when her initial injury stabilised, such a shame, so unfortunate, she'd be better off if she'd never made it. Now, we might not say that, but I suspect many of us think of that when we think of being paralysed. Death is preferable. How could anything be worse than what this man had already experienced? But Jesus says there is something worse, and he lets us know what it is. Do not be amazed at this, he says, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. You see, this something worth is not something that death spares you from. It is something that death brings you to. The resurrection to judgment, to condemnation, where God pronounces a verdict on your life and then executes his just sentence. Elsewhere in the New Testament, say Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of the content of that resurrection to condemnation as everlasting punishment. There is something worse than suffering in this life, says Jesus. It is resurrection to judgment. Now that is shocking for us, an age that wants to believe that you die and then you rot and that's the finish of it. But Jesus, with these words to the healed man, shocks. And he shocks us in another way, because it's quite plain that he thinks that sin, disobedience to God, missing the mark in our behaviour, causes and deserves this something worse. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now, how could, that, how could sin be that serious? For the consensus view of our society is that sin, if we still use such old-fashioned language, is pretty trivial. Oh, yeah, perhaps I told a lie to my parents. So what? Got me out of trouble, prevented a fuss. They didn't need to know it was no big deal. Oh, perhaps I fudged a little on my income tax. Well, that doesn't mean I'm not a good person because, let's face it, the government is greedy and I worked hard for that money and I'll use it better than they would. Maybe I do run people down in conversation and perhaps even abuse them to their face, but it's only words. If they're not tough enough to take it, that's their problem. Sure, I've used other people's stuff without telling them, but they weren't using it. So what if I have sex with someone I'm not married to? We're adults, we both wanted it, it feels so good. Lying, stealing, slander, gossip, unkindness, rudeness, sexual indulgence, not such a big deal. Everybody does it. But wait a minute. Before we dismiss sin as no big deal, let's think about what sin does. Those hurtful words, they crush a spirit. Fill a day with misery, breed resentment and hatred, poison a community. Those lies create distrust and habitual dishonesty destroys families and marriages, corrupts business, ruins economies. That sexual immorality leaves scars, making achieving the intimacy that cures our loneliness harder. Devalues commitment, fuels deceit. Theft brings poverty and insecurity and violence, well, that brings grief and a great burden of fear and anger. Sin 
Not living God's way is no trivial matter, even measured by its impact on others. But sin is more than its impact on others because all sin involves treating the living God, our Creator, with contempt. You see, it's God who said, say, don't lie, don't steal, honour your father and mother. And when you do those things, when you lie, steal, disrespect, you're actually saying, I know better than that. God, what does he know? And our sin isn't behind God's back. We do it in his face because he sees and knows all. Now, what do you think that kind of contempt for your creator deserves? And God is our creator. He gives us life. He gives us every good thing. He's wise and just, holy and good. His commandments are good. How can we measure the seriousness of standing in God's face and saying, God, you know nothing. You don't deserve to be listened to. I'll do what I want. Oh, with the life and good gifts you have given me, you just get out of my way. In Jesus' eyes, sin is serious. And those who sin deserve to rise to condemnation and eternal punishment. Now, some of you may be a little uncomfortable hearing this. Perhaps not just uncomfortable, but irritated and angry with this talk of sin and resurrection to judgment and eternal punishment. You might just see this as, well, a kind of talk that's trying to manipulate people through fear, trying to scare, not warn. Now, why, why do we react that way to the word of Jesus? Well, it's because many in our society now believe that religion is, is not about truth, it's just about morality. And the church is just trying to act like a moral policeman and maintain its influence in society by using this talk of judgment to enforce its understanding of right and wrong, what it's comfortable with. Now, with this understanding, talk of judgment and punishment is really just a form of moral bullying and defensive coming from people whose moral authority has been discredited by the recent Royal Commission. But there are actually two problems with that position. Firstly, the Christian faith is not primarily about morality or social influence. It's about relationship with the living God. And secondly, well, that response begs the truth question. The question of the reality of heaven and hell, it assumes without proving that there is no heaven or hell. Now, perhaps like John Lennon, you'd like to imagine things that way. But imagination and reality are two different things, aren't they? We all know that. Simple illustration. I might imagine myself kicking a goal in the World Cup, but I don't think that will influence the Australian selectors, no matter how desperate they get. Or more to the point, much more to the point, engaging with my imagination, I might imagine myself winning the Alpe d'Huez stage of the Tour de France. But that doesn't mean the recruiters from Sky Racing or BMC will ever knock at my door. If there is a resurrection and judgment, they're not wanting to think, <laughs> not wanting to think there is, well, that doesn't change reality. And if there is a resurrection and judgment, well, that means that when I speak to you of it or when you speak of it to others, it's not manipulation. 
It's actually warning. You see, you may not have realised that this is where your sin, your disobedience of God, your ignoring of God is leading. You need to know. Because Jesus plainly taught that there is such a resurrection and judgment. These are his words. And in these matters, his words are true, sure, reliable. But are they? Actually, that's the issue, isn't it? Why should we listen to Jesus? If Jesus is just a man, just a creature of his own time, sharing all the beliefs and superstition of his time, well, then there's no particular reason for us to listen to Jesus today, is there? But you see, that's not Jesus' estimate of himself. When he was questioned about healing this man on the Jewish Sabbath, he says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. His defence is that what's good for God is good for me. And the reason he can say that, he says, is his relationship with God, whom he calls his own father. In fact, verse 19, he says that what he does is dependent on the Father and that he does whatever the Father does. That is, his works are the works of God. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. That means listening to Jesus, you are listening to God, one who is equal to God. And he goes on to tell us in what ways by the Father's gift he is equal to God. Verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to those to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one but is entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Jesus says that like the Father, he can give life, resurrection life, and like the Father, he is humanity's judge. In fact, he says all judgment is in his hands, for the Father's will is that he, Jesus, the Son, shares equal honour with the Father, the honour which we should give God. Now they're extraordinary claims, aren't they? But it means that Jesus is telling us he is the authority on judgment. He's the one who should be listened to, the one who can tell us what will really happen then because he is the one who will judge. There can be no higher authority. But is there any reason why you and I should trust Jesus' estimate of himself? People of his own day were asking that. And Jesus spoke in response of testimony, of witness. And that, of course, is the language of the law courts. Now, how do you establish something as true or false in a court of law? How do you, for example, work out whether Joe Bloggs really did hit Bill Smith with that piece of 4B2 or not? Well, these days we might, you know, go to CCTV or forensics, you know, look for his fingerprints on the bit of 4B2 or records on the mobile phone or even the selfie he took after he smashed Joe Bloggs. Some criminals not being particularly bright do that. Right, but these, that, none of that was available in Jesus' day, was it? 
All they had was the testimony of witnesses, what people saw. And reaching a conclusion was all about evaluating the evidence of the witnesses. Jesus says that you can come to a conclusion about him, about who he is and whether or not he should be listened to and believed by considering the testimony of the witnesses that he lists for us here in John 5. Now he starts, verse 31, by acknowledging that if his first hearers only had his word, that, well, that wouldn't be binding, for Jewish law required the evidence of two or three witnesses for a judgment to be reached. But Jesus goes on to list in verses 33 to 40 four other witnesses for his hearers. So there's John the Baptist, somebody they recognise as a prophet of God. Oh, and then there's the witness of the works that Jesus was doing amongst them, the healings, the miraculous feedings, the casting out of demons, the raising of the dead. Then verse 39 he says, There are the scriptures, which for Jesus' first Jewish hearers were the word of God. Jesus was fulfilling the promises contained in them, promises given hundreds of years before. And yes, verse 37, he says, there is the witness of God the Father himself. For the Jewish people of Jesus' day, his first hearers, Jesus is saying that both recognised authority and their experience told them that he was telling the truth about himself. But you might say, well, that was back then. What about now? We're not Jews. Well, those witnesses still speak. We know more, say, of Jesus' fulfilment of the Old Testament that Jesus' audiences did then, and you can experience that fulfilment. Read Isaiah 53 and look at the life of Jesus. But more, we have the witness of the apostles, those who lived with Jesus throughout his ministry, who knew him, and who give us eyewitness reports of what he said and did. They tell us of what God did, the witness of God, what God did to confirm the truthfulness of Jesus' message. They tell us God raised Jesus from the dead and that they saw him, talked with him, touched him, ate with him alive after he'd been killed on the cross. You can read about that yourself. Read their witness in John 20 or Luke 24. Now the resurrection is the living God saying, Yes to Jesus in a way that only God can because only God can raise the dead. Saying, yes, Jesus is my son. Yes, Jesus tells the truth. Now, some want to dismiss the witness of the apostles because it well, comes from almost 2,000 years ago. But why? Were people back then any less able to tell the difference between the living and the dead than we are? It's a pretty fundamental distinction. Well, of course not. In fact, they were probably much more familiar with death than most of us. And God only needs to raise Jesus once if it's witnessed by credible and reliable people who stick to what they say and if their testimony is accurately recorded for people of other times and places, people who weren't there. And the Gospels are an accurate recording of their testimony. God doesn't need to keep having Jesus killed and raised again over and over and over again before we know his witness. 
once is enough. See, think about it. How many times do you need to break the world 400 metres record to be proclaimed the world record holder? If you run your race before the right people under the right, the approved conditions with the approved timing devices, well, you only need to do it once, don't you? And if you do it in Australia, you don't need to repeat it in the US or France or China to be recognised as the world record holder. No. If you have credible and reliable witnesses, you only need to do it once. Jesus only needed to die and rise once. God witnessed to the truthfulness of what Jesus said by raising him from the dead. And God still witnesses to the truthfulness of Jesus by entrusting to Jesus the authority to give the Holy Spirit to those who trust him. Yes, there's the experience of those who trust Jesus today, who receive his spirit as he promised. Their experience witnesses to the truthfulness of what Jesus said. They have actually, in a sense, demonstrated, proved the truthfulness of Jesus in their own lives, in their experience of forgiveness, of answered prayer, of changed lives. So today, we too have witnesses. We have evidence, firstly, from history. The apostles witness in the New Testament documents. Oh yes, and still the recognised, the evidence of recognised authority. Jesus' fulfilment of the Old Testament scriptures. And yes, there is the evidence, the witness of those who believe in him today. All tell us Jesus should be listened to because he tells us the truth. And so in repeating what Jesus says about resurrection and judgment, I'm telling you the truth, what the authority on life and judgment says. And when you speak to others about what Jesus has said, you are telling them the truth, what the authority on life and judgment says. This is a reality, that those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. It's the reality. And that means that we all, in reality, have a problem because none of us are good. Oh, I know we have a tendency these days to divide the world into good people and bad people where usually good people are those who agree with us on social media and bad people aren't, are those who don't. But actually none of us is good. We all sin. We have all done things that deserve condemnation. Now, thankfully, declaring the reality of resurrection and judgment is not the only word Jesus speaks. He didn't come to earth just to tell us we had a problem. And I suspect that if we're honest with ourselves, we'd admit that we knew already that we had a problem. You know, whether it's because we see the hurt our actions have caused others, or whether it's the hurt the actions of others have caused us, or whether it's lying in weakness in a hospital bed or sitting in grief in a funeral chapel, we knew we had a problem. We may not have expressed the problem the way Jesus does. We may not have thought it as serious as Jesus does, but we knew we had a problem. And Jesus didn't come just to tell us that. He is more than the fire alarm. Jesus is the fireman who leads us to safety. He came to tell us that there was 
a solution. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. Jesus says that he has come with a message from God which, if believed, will spare you from God's just condemnation and give you eternal life, a life at peace with God, a life that starts now, a life that knows no death. Now what is this word that the Son of God speaks that can bring life to the dead? That's us those living in a world characterised by darkness, lies and death. Well, it's the word about Jesus and what he has done. That Jesus is the one sent from the Father, the one who speaks the truth of God, the one who gives his life in death on the cross to give us life. That's right, Jesus spoke again and again about his death and how through that death he would bring life to all who believe in him. Going through John, we've already heard Jesus speak of that in John 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus returns to speaking of his death again and again throughout the gospel, speaking of his death as the source of life and insistence on his death as the source of life that caused many to turn away from him. I'm the living bread, says Jesus, that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world. Oh, Jesus says he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep to give them abundant life. And Jesus says to us, the one who hears this word and believes that this word I speak is the word of the living God, is God's word because I am the Son of God sent from the Father, doing his will come to save through my death. The one who hears my word, says Jesus, and believes has eternal life. That's right, has, now and forever. He or she will not be condemned, for they have already passed, says Jesus, from death to life. So do you hear Jesus' word spoken to you this evening, that this is a promise that he speaks to you? Do you believe Jesus when he speaks when he promises life. Not all who heard Jesus speak believed. In fact, Jesus warned that believing isn't easy, even for those who had the witness of the scriptures were perhaps most familiar with them. You study the scriptures, he said to the Jewish officials, diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, why did they refuse? Was it some deficiency in the evidence? 
No. Jesus says it was their hearts. I don't accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Again, verse 44. How can you believe since you accept glory, that is praise, from one another, but do not seek the glory, the praise that comes from the only God. You see, for all their religion, the focus of these officials was not on God and what he thought of them. They had no love of God in their hearts. They didn't want God in control. They didn't want to give themselves to his will, which is what it is to love God. Rather, they valued winning the approval and praise of their peers, being well thought of, by their friends and colleagues in doing what they wanted. They valued that above God's approval. Now think about that. What holds you back from believing? Probably not a commitment to the Jewish scriptures. Well, what about a commitment to reason? That's common in our age, isn't it? Isn't reason what you perhaps think will give you life, be the source for you of the good life? Well, let me tell you that reason says that if God raised Jesus from the dead, it is right to trust him and wrong, irrational not to. And when the transmission of the evidence and the content of the testimony of the apostles is examined, well, it's actually reasonable to believe that we have eyewitness testimony in the New Testament to that resurrection. It's reasonable to believe that amongst all the explanations of their experience, that the explanation they give, that they ate with Jesus, they saw him, they touched him, because God had raised him from the dead in the body in which he died. Well, the explanation they give is the most reasonable for what they experienced. And if you doubt that reason, commends faith in the risen Jesus, come and talk and consider whether the problem with your not believing is not the evidence but your heart. You don't want to love God. You don't want to live a life where you humble yourself before him and do his will. Consider whether reason itself won't accuse you on the last day. Maybe what I've said has made you uncertain. Well, come and examine the evidence afresh. Come and talk. We'd be only too happy to go through a gospel with you so you can hear Jesus and assess it for yourself. But I know this evening that many of you who are listening to me actually do, by God's grace, believe Jesus' word. And believing, no, you have eternal life and will not be judged, but have crossed over from death to life. Well, just pause and think what a wonderful thing, what an extraordinary thing it is to know that, to be able to say to yourself that you have eternal life. Not because you are good or outstanding in any way, but because God is gracious and he has given his son to be the sacrifice for your sins. Isn't that a wonderful thing, to know for yourself 
Well, if that is you, if you do know that, let your faith in Jesus show every day by honouring Jesus, God's Son, because that is God the Father's will. Honouring Jesus by giving him with the Father your worship, the praise that is due to God. Honouring Jesus by loving him with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, the love that is due to God. And in loving Jesus as you ought to love God, being committed to conforming your thinking, your speaking and your acting to his will. Let your faith show in honouring Jesus by being willing to stand apart in an age that seeks to promote multi-faith activity, that wants to obscure the differences between faith, that says that really they're all the same leading to God. No, honour Jesus by being willing to stand apart by saying that the true God can only be known and worshipped where Jesus, his beloved Son, is confessed as his Son. And that where Jesus the Son is not confessed, there is no true knowledge of God. Honour Jesus the Son by saying that the religions of the world or the heresies that deny Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father are not worshipping God or pleasing to God and that there is no life in them. Let your faith show by honouring Jesus, living with a confident hope, a confident hope that will both die with courage, and we should if we believe his third, that we will not come into judgment. Living with a confident hope that will pay with joy now the cost of confessing Jesus as the Son of the Father, equal to the Father in doing the work of God, that will pay the cost with joy because you know the word of Jesus the Son, the authority on resurrection and life and judgment because he is the judge. You know that the word of Jesus gives you life and will raise you to life and it will give life to all, your family, your friends, all who trust him. Honouring Jesus by making that word that Jesus gives life clear and proclaiming it boldly without any compromise. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word, says Jesus, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Do you believe this word of Jesus? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son into the world. We thank you that he did your work and spoke your word and that his is a true word, a word that reveals our danger and a word that offers us life. Help us to believe Jesus and in believing him know that we have life. And gracious Father, where we believe him, help us to honour him by our worship, by our love, 
and by our bold and joyous confession that he alone is the Son and that in him alone we find life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.